I'm Jim Irvin, and this is You're Not On The List, the show that celebrates forgotten albums and the people who love them. Two guests and I each select a record that doesn't make those lists of the greatest ever made, which we think are long overdue innovation. And joining me to pluck orphans from the snow in this episode are Andrew Mayle and Richard Morton Jack. Andrew Mayle is an admired cultural critic, a long-time former editor at both Premier and Mojo magazines, now a writer-at-large covering music, movies, TV and the subtly evolving contents of Eric Clapton's bookshelf. Andrew has endeared himself to Twitter followers with regular catch-ups on the inactivity of his cats and marginally more outgoing golden retriever Nico. Plus lots about music, movies, books, dips into the archive of peanuts and occasional outbursts of righteous anger. Andrew, you're waspish and edifying, what I call it, it's a lecture, upstanding rumination on the contents of Clapton's bookshelf as it repeatedly appeared behind him in various interviews, sort of foretold the malaise of our time, hasn't it, being judged by one's background in Zoom meetings? <laughs> yeah, I, was, I had no idea that it would have such an impact on the cultural history of Britain when I did it um, <laughs> back in 2013. But yeah, it's sort of Judging someone on the, the, the paucity of their book collection uh, seems to be something that everyone started doing during lockdown. Have you, have you had any feedback from Clapton himself on it ever? Oh, and I'm sure he's not very happy with it. I mean, there are a couple of people on the YouTube site that just say this is disrespectful and Eric Clapton is a great guitarist and why should I be doing this to him? And, uh, <laughs> and um, I did it because it was funny. You know, I felt that there was a real sadness to Eric Clapton's bookshelf, as I think I said in the piece, the the need to be shown as possibly learned and erudite. But then, you know, just having a bookshelf that looks like something in the holiday cabin up in the Lake District. One of those shelves where people have left books for other people exactly. to take. That's exactly what it looks like. Please take. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Richard Morton Jack is the creator and editor of the recently republished Galactic Ramble, an extraordinary vast volume attempting to cover every British pop, rock and jazz album released between Love Me Do and the first rumblings of punk, so he knows a thing or two about forgotten albums. He's championed many of them as the one-time publisher of Flashback magazine and the founder of esoteric reissues label Sunbeam, whose releases included The Cultish Fruits of Linda Perhax, Fresh Maggots and Mighty Baby. Richard, which of the records you disinterred for Sunbeam were you proudest to reintroduce to the public? That's like choosing between your children <laughs> in a crazy way. I don't know is the answer to that. There's one called Moisha McStiff and the Tartan Lancers of mm. the Sacred Heart by Cobb. Yes. It's quite well known now, but at the time that I was looking into it, it wasn't well known beyond collectors. And I don't take the credit for that single-handedly, but I went through the phone book in Cornwall to find one of the band members that the other band members couldn't find. And he was called Mick Bennett. And there were quite a few M. Bennett's. And when I did find him via that method and told him my business, it was a lovely moment. He was completely speechless and pleased. And we ended up in Abbey Road together quite soon afterwards, listening to the master tape with Ralph McTell, who produced it. And that was just a lovely example of what can happen when you set yourself that task. 
Congratulations on Galactic Ramble, by the way. Part of that is reprinting clips from contemporary reviews for each record. And one thing that struck me was the number of times the music press are in complete disagreement about a record. And one review I noted said, terrible production of some fine songs. And the next said, beautifully recorded but unmemorable material. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and plus ça change, because now I find that when I put records out, reissue records, sometimes you get people saying how brilliant the remastering is and other people saying that it sounds terrible you learn not to take reviews too seriously but it's chastening for us critics isn't it andrew to to note that and probably even ourselves i think if we reviewed a record on a different day we'd have a different opinion of it oh absolutely and i think that's when we've been sort of one of the joys of thinking about records for this the effect that age and experience has on it it's not just about the quality of the music or the quality of the recording it's who you were when you listen to it and how you heard it in the context of that artist's history as well, how time has affected it. But it's absolutely fascinating. And I luckily got a copy of Galactic Ramble as well. And it's great to look at these kind of contemporary takes on albums that were just dismissed or, you know, barely even recognised at the time. Did, did you either of you think there is really any such thing as a great forgotten record? Well, I, I remember somebody, Jim Irvin, um, at Mojo Magazine about 20 years ago saying, I, I think that's it. I think they've reissued all the all the records. Like, I think that there can't be anything more left. <laughs> and I think what's been amazing in those 20 years is how great forgotten records still keep getting unearthed. Certainly there was a time when the words Lost Sight Classic would cause a groan in the Mojo office because we would kind of listen to it and think this is, this is a load of old trousers. I'm still amazed that some of the words I discover are either just through recommendations, just for just buying on the strength of a cover or who's playing in, in the band or through reissues. And it now seems endless to me. I agree with Andrew that practically everything now seems to be described as a lost classic or a masterpiece. Those sorts of words, a bit like genius, that hyperbole, of course, it helps sell things, but it suggests that everything that's spent long enough in a cupboard emerges radiant. And I'm not convinced that things are as good as people say they are, but there's plenty of good stuff still. And I think it'll probably be another hundred years before it's all been assessed and commented on and understood do you remember in the 90s um andrew how every press release mentioned nick drake yeah <laughs> he was the only example people could think of something that had been rediscovered deified after death and then it kind of almost like the decade after it became arthur russell yeah who is it now is it alice coltrane you know the kind of yeah. the, that name that sort of crops up on all the press releases yeah, 90s, it was always Nick Drake, and it was always that Weller, Wildwood, acoustic folk kind of thing, yeah. the reference point. The great thing about Nick Drake is, from a historical perspective, is that he's the perfect lost artist because there's no going back and finding material about him and interviews and footage. There isn't any. It's, yeah. it's postmodern joke with Nick Drake. There is just so little firsthand stuff to reassess or to comment on. There are his albums, a handful of home recordings, a couple of demos, a couple of interviews. That's it. Have you either of you ever met anyone who saw him play live or, or knew him? Because even they, they're thin on the ground, aren't they? I interviewed Michael Chapman. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And of course, like saw him play live and then Nick stayed over at his house. And of course, interviewed Richard Thompson as well. So that's that's two I've spoken <laughs> to. It's pretty good going. 
I'm halfway through writing his authorised biography, so I know all of them, and I've been working closely with his sister and his estate for the last couple of years on that. So I think I've spoken to everyone I'm aware of who ever knew him in any capacity, and he's still pretty enigmatic. That's really interesting because the other thing to sort of back up Jim's point is not only, as you were saying, is there no material, when people met him, there was no material because he was so you know, non-communicative. I mean, you know, talking to Richard Thompson and, and him having to tell the same story. And there's that thing where you start to wonder, are they recounting them? You must have this, Richard. Are they recounting their memories or are they recounting their memories as they've seen them written down in the past? And, and also, is there a certain embarrassment in recounting their meeting with Nick Drake because so little happened? So there's, they feel like the need to embellish. Absolutely. And unpicking that is, it's not just Nick Drake, of course, that goes for anyone who keeps being asked the same questions. And Paul yeah. McCartney, the most famous example. Yeah. There are people who literally say on forums, or so I am told, oh, Paul told anecdote 72 and 38 on Parkinson <laughs> last week. <laughs> because they know, and Paul tells them the same way each time, and people know exactly where he'll pause and when he'll do his little wink or whatever. But Paul probably doesn't remember the raw material of his own life anymore. Yeah, McCartney's a really interesting one because I know a couple of people who've interviewed him and they've come out of the interview thinking, that was amazing. That was absolutely incredible. It's almost like he performs a Jedi mind trick on them and they kind of come out thinking that they've got this, you know, this scoop, this amazing interview. And then they sit down to transcribe it and just go, I've got nothing here. There's nothing here. Just him saying, we were a great little band. Yeah. <laughs> well, something I think is really interesting on that front, I, I'm lucky enough to know Mark Lewison quite well, and we, we're, yeah. we're in touch a lot, and, and I find Mark absolutely fascinating. And he told me something which I think is absolutely extraordinary, which is that so far, as far as Mark is aware, which basically means as far as anyone's aware, no one ever asked John Lennon about Stuart Sutcliffe, and John never made a comment about him. And the reason for that, Mark thinks, is because no one ever asked. John yeah. spoke about anything. Nothing was off limits for John. But no one ever said to him, talk, talk to me about Stuart. He was a great mate of yours. He died. How did that make you feel? How did that inform the Beatles? What would have happened if he'd stayed alive? Whatever. And I think Paul, probably just about, he's getting on for 80, could still give some really interesting answers to questions that he hasn't been asked. Yeah. But only someone like Mark knows what those questions are. And Paul won't talk to, to Mark. Mark should have outriders, not spies, but just kind of people who he, he sends in, young, unassuming people in their 20s who Paul will think would be quite fun to interview, and send them armed with Lewis and strength questions. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so you get Idris Elba or someone suddenly asking Paul something <laughs> absolutely bizarre about their living quarters in Hamburg. <laughs> That would be amazing. <laughs> I interviewed Paul once and I was really struck by the thought of what it must be like to, as you walk into a room, know that you are the most famous person anyone in that room is ever going to meet. Yeah. That must do weird things to you, mustn't it, as a person? And of course, he has kind of stratagems for making you feel at ease and he does all his, mm. he has his act and everything. But there was still a residue of, don't you know who I am? There's a line that you don't cross with him, definitely. No, he's like the royal family. <laughs> if you if you say the wrong thing in front of Paul, you you definitely get exiled. Yeah, I, I forget where it was because I think it was for a Mojo feature, and um, you you get told not to take anything along to to be signed. Uh, there was a photographer who went along with his copy of 
Sergeant Pepper and, you know, obviously hadn't gotten the message and got it out to get it signed. And Paul very obviously wrote the date of when he signed it. So it was like, you know, 2004 in very big letters. I sympathise because people like Paul now realise that basically what they're doing in signing things is giving someone 300 quid. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, And that not only slightly annoys them for reasons that are probably hard to articulate, but also means that it diminishes the value of their autograph when they sign things for charity and this sort of thing. Yeah. I asked both of you to fill in a kind of questionnaire before we started recording, um, a musical CV to give listeners some idea of your background. Question one was, what was the first pop record you asked for or bought? Andrew, what was yours? The first record I bought was very important, was Jeff Loves Big Terror Movie Themes. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and I think I bought it for the cover because it had lots of amazing illustrations of terrifying films that I'd never seen and felt that I'd never be old enough to see, like Rollerball and Jaws and The Exorcist, and somehow felt that I was getting a ticket into all of these films just by buying this record and was hugely disappointed. I'd not made this connection. I'd not made the realisation that when I put the needle on the record, all I'd hear was just bits of orchestral music. It was, in, it was so. It was in a way. It was like the most important record ever, and the most disappointing at the same time. <laughs> what did you think you were going to hear then? I think maybe I thought I'd hear bits of dialogue from the film. I don't know. I don't think I thought it through that much, Jim. I think it was maybe just, you thought it would be scary in itself. Mm, I think so. Yeah, because I liked um, horror stories and. I liked, you know, the Buster Book of Spooky Stories and things like that. I was, and apparently, my, my brother tells me um, that I used to tell myself ghost stories when I went to sleep. I'd just lie, lie in bed and, and they used to record me doing them. I'd tell myself t- scary stories about skeletons. You were a junior MR James, were you? Uh, Absolutely. And um, yeah, as I say, it's, the, it's, it's simultaneously the greatest record ever <laughs> and the most disappointing. <laughs> Richard, what scary record did you first ask for? Well, I'm afraid, uh, along with 30 million other people, it was Thriller by Michael Jackson. Ah, so it was horror-related. Yes, but Andrew has just made me think that I, um, at the same sort of time, had a tape of Jeff Love playing big TV themes or something, which my older brother and I used to listen to a lot, just randomly. was pretty much the only tape we probably had between us. And it didn't occur to us at all that it was strange to listen to the music from TV programmes that we had never heard of and certainly never seen. And so Upstairs, Downstairs and the Onedin line and various other 70s called it Escape from Called It, maybe. I've still never seen these programmes, but I know their theme tunes back to front. The uh, the first album I can remember buying is uh, You Can All Join In, The Island Sampler. It's a good gateway drug. Yeah, absolutely. it was definitely. It, it was it was at a discounted price as well, but that would have been one of the reasons. Yeah, well, it was mm. a sampler, wasn't it? It was sort of fourteen and six or something. You know, it was pocket pocket money prices. Was there one called Bumpers? Was there? Yeah, kind of a lot of people bought those samplers. That was great. That was a that was a double album. Bumpers is quite interesting because it's a double album with practically everyone who was on Island at the time represented, and two thirds of the tracks on it are errors. They're wrong takes, or they've got fluffed vocals or they they go on for longer than the the album versions because they fade out is a minute later so bumpers is this incredible resource for listening to 
stuff that should never have been in the public domain. Oh, that's interesting. I knew about the Sandy Denny. A different version of Late November is on there, isn't there? But I, yes. I didn't realise everything else was uh, was wonky Well, annoyingly, well. the Nick Drake is exactly the same as the album version. It's another <laughs> example of why Nick Drake's so hard to get any sort of angle on. Yeah, I love those island samplers. As you say, absolute gateway drug to my entire taste. One of the great ones was LP, which was another double album with drawings of all the act on the inside. And it had this sponge-lined, transparent inner sleeve that when you pulled the record out, it cleaned the record. That's called an Avpack. It's a, it was a <laughs> new, exciting packaging concept in 1970, 71. And, and didn't catch on, did it? Well, the problem is that the foam started reacting. Oh, did it? And Avpack records now have disastrous damage, which irreversible damage. Oh, really? I must Irreversible damage guaranteed. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid it's uh, so they're very unpopular with collectors, though. Ah, I must check my copy of LP and see if it's kind of <laughs> gone green or something. <laughs> Weird. Um, record that changed your life or significantly shifted your musical taste. Richard, what about you? Absolutely, without hesitation, Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses. So I was probably eight when that came out, something like mm. that, nine, and uh, I'd never heard the like. It was it was accessible, commercial enough to, for a child to get a handle on, but it just seemed like something from outer space. And lots of people have had experiences like that with with records that were way beyond their usual ken. But for me, that record really opened up my ears to an awful lot of music, and I still think it's a brilliant record. But if I heard it now, or if I'd been a bit older then, I'd have dismissed it. And, and most people I know do dismiss it. And I still really respect that album, not purely nostalgically. I, I, I do think it's a really, really good record. And, uh, and I'm really pleased that I heard it when I did because it completely reoriented my musical tastes and those of the other friends of mine who, who were in the club listening to it at school with the swear words and the weird references to stuff on the tape inlay that we didn't understand <laughs> and the lyrics that seemed to hint at complete decadence, but stuff that I just really didn't even understand conceptually let alone in 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 their sort of idiomatic los angeles way of speaking what kind of music were you listening to before then that was at age eight oh, i had been listening to those brilliant tapes which no one listens to now i've got children that age and i wish they did of eddie cochran and little richard and you used to be able to buy these for 49p in woolworths and you, they just had all of these unbelievable songs on the, the 50s rock and roll which was endlessly being repackaged on budget double cassettes and things in the 80s so i knew all of this slightly weird rock and roll by the big bopper and so on by the age of about six and and those were really a really good grounding as well budget records are really important in you know when you're starting out aren't they and the, the, the things that were cheap now I can remember um, Woolworths being flooded with overstocks from RCA and stuff in the early 70s when I was about 10. And among them were things like the Fresh Maggots album, which I picked up for 50p. Yes, my copy of Fresh Maggots has a sticker on it saying drastically reduced. It's <laughs> yeah. a weird word, drastic, to use on a sticker, but there it is. And obviously, for that reason, I assigned no value to it whatsoever, and I gave it to a mate of mine who was more into kind of watery folk and wished I hadn't, because it's now <laughs> worth hundreds of pounds. But, uh, Andrew, did you have any early purchases that were super cheap that you, you, you adored? 
the the album that significantly shifted my musical taste was a cassette of the beats just can't stop it and i think because i'm i had an older brother so i'd grown up with music i'd grown up with bob dylan simon and garfunkel neil young crosby stills and nash grew up in a in a house full of music but there's that that important thing where you think it's not mine you know it's kind of it's something that belongs to my brother and even though i liked all this stuff the first album but the first record that felt truly mine, I think, was um, Just Can't Stop It by The Beat. It just felt like it sounded different to all my brother's records. It, it sounded fun, but I also knew it was political and it was just, it was exciting. It was, it was much more exciting than my brother's Gordon Lightfoot record. And it felt young and it had rude words on and it felt quite edgy. But I also knew that it was kind of, you know, it was, it was right on because it having a pop at the Nazis. Were you old enough to go to gigs and things by that point? Yeah, I actually went to gigs quite late. The first gig I went to see was um, Dire Straits, the NEC. But the second gig I went to was um, Curtis Mayfield at uh, Liverpool University, who went with my brother. That was massively important as well. There were about 12 people there, wow. including, including, including the Christians, the, you know, the Liverpool... The band. yeah. And uh, but there was no one there, absolutely no one there, and it was remains to this day one of the most astonishing gigs I've ever seen. And did he give a full performance? Yeah, it was all the hits. Not that I knew any of them apart from Move On Up at the time. Yeah. Just absolutely incredible. And I think that was because you know, Die Straits, the NEC, just like didn't feel like a gig, even though I thought it was very exciting. And it's more like a rally, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> if, if in some fantasy way. Um... Curtis Mayfield were to play a gig tomorrow, what venue do you think he could fill? I mean, pretty much sky's the limit, right? Yeah. It's just amazing to think that reasonably recently these people were playing to half-empty rooms. It was a, but, I mean, it was, you know, around about the same time that, you know, Marvin Gaye was playing Butlins or whatever, isn't it? You know, it's kind yeah. of early. Johnny Cash. I always use the adverts for Johnny Cash in the Sunday papers doing Butlins weekenders. Yeah. <laughs> And now he's so kind of, oh, he's dead, obviously, but he, yeah, the Rick Rubin thing made him so non-Butlins. Was yeah. that, wasn't that the period when he was living with Nick Lowe in Brentford or something? Because, you know, Nick Lowe <laughs> was his son-in-law. And, um, and Nick used to say it was really funny when Johnny would put his jacket on and go down the road to buy some cigarettes or something and the curtains would twitch and say, hey, oh, mother, it's man in black. <laughs> <laughs> Do you either of you have a, a touchstone, a greatest record ever made, one that you can rely on every time you pull it out of the bag? Yeah, I've got a few, but I try to ration myself on them because you end up obviously getting a bit sick of them. But I think Forever Changes by Love. If someone said to me, "What? I don't have, have any albums, tell me a good album to get, what, what would be something? I think I'd always say, well, Forever Changes is brilliant because it's so likeable. There's, it's, it's easy to enjoy. And yes, it's got a lot of depth and strangeness and charisma to it uh, and I think it, it can un unveil different things as you grow older with it and all the rest of it that all the things you want from a great book or album or film so yeah that that always springs to mind for me. Andrew that was a big album in Liverpool wasn't it Forever Changes were you aware of Massive. that? Yeah because of Jeff Davis who ran Probe Records he would recommend it to everybody you know people who came into Liverpool like Julian Cope this record was thrust upon them Probe could be quite scary, but Jeff was really nice. And I remember my brother used to send me into 
town to he'd give me money out of his wage packer and he worked at Camelair send me into town to buy records for him at the weekend which was a great treat he would leave me some money to get something for myself I just heard I think John Peel on uh Desert Island Discs playing Big Eye Beans from Venus. So I'd have been about sort of 14. I bought Clear Spot by Captain Beefheart. And Jeff went, Jeff went, how old are you, lad? <laughs> and I, you know, said, 14. And he, and he just, he literally announced the shop. He went, there's a lad here, just bought the best records any of you will buy all day. <laughs> and that was a massively important moment for me in my, in my record buying. <laughs> it was great. Like, he was really good. I mean, you had him and then you also had Pete Burns working there, yeah. who was famously terrifying, <laughs> would just look at your record as you were buying it and then look at you and just like this disgust you had an eye roll that could kill yeah yeah <laughs> uh i loved the first love album i thought that was fantastic when i was nine or, or whenever i first heard that and then when i first heard forever changes i thought it sounded like the moody blues or something i was quite struck at how pale it seemed in a way by comparison to the sort of garagey attack of the first love record and it took me years to get back into it. And I think that's an interesting thing, isn't it, about when we hear records and how yeah. how they change if you hear them out of context. If you hear them in their time, you can you can dismiss them, but 10 years later, they sound fantastic. But And also that weird thing of, like, which, you know, record snobs place a great importance on of whether you're hearing a record from that time in mono or stereo. Because I remember, you know, when people first told me about this, like, oh, you know, you've got to hear... Piper at the Gates of Dawn and mono, not stereo. And I've got a mono copy of Forever Changes. And I find it thrillingly exciting because it all seems to be coming straight at me. Yeah. You know, kind of a not diffuse and kind of, it doesn't sound weedy at all to me. It's all up in your grill. Yeah, it's all <laughs> up in my grill. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, let's get on with our, our records, shall we? Uh, Richard, let's begin with you. What uh, album have you chosen to bring along today? I have chosen Four Little Ones by Donovan. The reason I wanted to talk about it is because I feel a bit of missionary zeal about Donovan, but especially that record, because relatively few people listen to it or know it, or indeed know his work beyond his hits. It's just, for me, no getting around the incredible productivity and talent that he had circa 1967. And that particular album, for me, has a real magic to it. And also... I find it interesting what a really obvious influence it exerted, which is now rather forgotten about. But you can really trace directly from that album work that was being done by the Beatles and Nick Drake and you name it. They clearly paid close attention to what Donovan was doing. So I feel aggrieved on his behalf that people laugh at him still and say he is a Dylan copyist and this sort of rubbish. Apart from anything else, he had the first sort of psychedelic record to go to number one in America, didn't he, with Sunshine Superman, which was recorded at the end of 65. I mean, that was tremendously forward thinking in, in a way. Absolutely. And he was the first person to have sitars on his records. And I mean, he was way ahead of the game. I talked to John Cameron recently for another podcast that I do, and he, mm. his first arranging gig was Sunshine Superman, which he landed with some Spike Heatley, and they did it together. He said it was quite funny because he's had a number one record in America, and, of course, nobody knew about it over here because it hadn't come out. So he didn't get any jobs out of it. He had to go into panto. He had a, a Christmas in the pit orchestra at a panto while, um, while over in America, Sunshine Superman was number one. Amazing. The thing we should explain is that it, 
wasn't released as four little ones in this country, was it, this album? Uh, no, so sorry, it wasn't. You're absolutely right. So it came out in America slightly ahead of the UK as two separate albums. So one was called Four Little Ones and the other one was called Wear Your Love Like Heaven. The UK put them both together under the even more nauseating name of <laughs> A Gift from a Flower to a Garden. But for me, the the, the pop record, so to speak, which weirdly is meant to be the one that's aimed at adults is much less interesting it's just very good pop but it's not as advanced or as i'd say it's more childish than the other one exactly i i I, it's back to front it's strange but the one that's called for little ones which is supposedly children's songs for me is the rosetta stone or wellspring or whatever other cliche one might say for what has come to be called acid folk and anyone who doesn't know that record back to front, but does know Linda Perhax and Vashti Bunyan and you name it, is absolutely missing out and, and doesn't know where Donovan sits in the canon, quite honestly. So for me, Donovan is obviously not at all obscure, but this particular record, most people probably wouldn't even recognise a single song on it. And it's absolutely brilliant, innovative, spaced out acoustic ballads which I think anyone would love. Everyone I know that's heard this record, it completely sucks you in. Yeah. And you get an instant reaction to it, don't you? I mean, I think I was 13 when I first heard it. I went round to my school friend's house. In fact, he's the same guy that I gave my copy of Fresh Maggots to. And his sister was uh, a big folky, and she had Tom Paxton albums and Ralph McTell albums and that kind of thing, and a copy of this. I remember we, we were sort of chatting away, doing our homework together or whatever, and he put this on, and we both just sat there for the whole of the first side and stared into the middle distance and were completely wrapped by it. And I, I don't think anything had ever quite transported me in the same way. Well, I agree, and I, I'm not personally uh, into um, psychedelic uh, drugs, but records like this make me feel like I don't need to be because yeah. not that it's full of wah-wahs and sound effects, which I love too, but it, it does that thing which LSD does and did, as I understand it, which is to make you look at the world through new eyes. And there's a real sense, I find, of wonder and enjoyment of the simplicity of nature, of life and birth and the movement of the seasons, all of these basics. There's an absolute sense of him looking at them afresh and with wonder. And I find that quite infectious when I listen to it. There's nothing at all cynical about it, but nor is it hippy dippy and mellow yellow sort of stuff. It's got more depth and soul to it. And of course, on the box of Gift from Flower to a Garden, he sort of force wears drugs, doesn't he? He says, I want everyone to to give them up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I've had brilliant fun taking drugs and now i've decided <laughs> I think you should to tell everyone else not to because the maharishi has told me not to yes richard can i ask you a question about it that's always puzzled me pie records the most famously stingy label that wouldn't that you know the kinks put village green out as a double album how do they end up doing this ridiculous double box set thing for donovan I mean, it just seems like it's kind of, you can imagine other labels doing it, but from Pi, it just seems like the most out of character thing. Well, I agree. And not only did it have the box, but it also had a quite lavish, by any standards, sheaf of printed lyrics all on different coloured bits of paper inside a folio. So they'd really gone to town on it. I can only assume that tight-fisted though they were, they recognised that they could charge a fortune for this package and probably charged accordingly. 
What is it? Like seventy shillings or something? Or yeah, I can remember it. I, I can remember it being incredibly expensive because I was a big fan of Sunshine Superman, which was the album the, the British version had just come out, and I went in to the shop to buy his follow up, which was this, and <laughs> sort of blanched, <laughs> you know, <laughs> held up my yeah. pound note and went. Um, yeah, it was something like four quid. I'm just trying to think. Was it the first ever pop box set? I think it was, yeah. It certainly predated All Things Must Pass. By a long time, yeah. Can I just say, if anyone listening has a copy of this record, could you check and see if you've got in your folio uh, two copies of Epistle to Derry, the last song on the album, because I have two copies of Song of the Naturalist's Wife and not a copy of that. So if you happen to have the other way around, can we swap? (laughs) Brilliant. Um, I can remember sitting there with these lyrics on my lap and being quite amazed at how simple it is and how as you say direct it is and yet full of little details that stayed with me forever like the chiff chaff eggs and all that kind of stuff yes let's hear a little bit of it um some 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 clips from the record and just to give people that don't know it a a flavor of this effect before you play them jim can i just make make another point that i think interesting when when hearing it especially for the first time is that i think donovan's guitar playing on it is absolutely wonderful i think the clarity of the recording is 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 wonderful too he produced it himself despite mickey most's credit mickey most wasn't even there but you can hear why youngsters with guitars listening to it want it to sound like him and and obviously we we all know that john lennon was very interested in donovan's acoustic guitar style that there's at least one song, and I think it's, is it a Voyage in the Golden Screen that sounds exactly like Julia or, or, or something from, the, from yes. the White Album, isn't it? So. And also I think Donovan's singing is wonderful on it. His enunciation is quite eccentric. He, yeah. he places emphasis on, on T's, quite hard to carry off without sounding kooky and without popping the microphone. And he rolls his R's a lot, doesn't he? Exactly. So that's to emphasise, I think, maybe the Celtic Scottishness of it, which is entirely his prerogative, of course. But from a songwriting and a singing and a guitar playing and a recording perspective, it, it's a really wonderful listen. Let's have a quick blast of it. How high the girls fly, O'Reilly How sad the farmland deep in play Felt like a grain on your sand How well the sheep's bell music makes Rove and the cliff when fancy takes Felt like a tide left me here Showered far a drip, splash and trickle running. Plant has flowered in the sand, shell and pebble sunning. So begins another spring, green leaves and of berries. Chiff chaff eggs are painted by. Mother bird eating cherries. 
I do wonder if kids would find it a bit unsettling, actually, yeah. this record. What, what do you think, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the opposite effect uh, to the one he supposedly wanted to create. I, I certainly think it's eccentric and I can see why someone might find it a little eerie. Have you played it to your own kids, Richard? Uh, it's off, it used to be on in the car quite a lot when they were really little and, and, and they would, it would definitely 100% c- calm them down and make them go to sleep. But I'm not sure that that's, um, you know, any different to any other sort of soft acoustic record. You don't know what they were dreaming, though, do you? <laughs> I think we should also say that every single song is really good on this record. It's one of those where each time I play it, I go, oh, it's this one. I love this one. <laughs> well, I completely agree. And I think the, the Beatles did not lightly commit to people they admired they put all their chips onto nielsen famously at one point when they were put on the spot but they didn't endorse other artists very often at all and donovan is a really obvious example of someone that they did respect and he was a one-man band and i can really understand why john and paul would have slightly been a little bit slack-jawed at donovan because he was writing great song after great song all on his own and not that john and paul weren't doing it separately too but they had each other to bounce off and so on and i can see why going off to rishikesh with him it wasn't just an accident that they were all on the same trip the other thing we should say is that if you did buy gift from a flower to a garden that the first album where you love like heaven is one of the shortest records ever made i think it's 24 minutes long in total and really feels like it's been tossed off in an afternoon it's the sort of complete opposite quality wise of, of of this one you know there's some nice moments on it but it's pretty throwaway whereas this feels so substantial doesn't it it feels so considered and, and well laid down and i completely agree i think the pop record is is very high quality but slightly light though i do think that um I'm a personal crusader against sound effects on records. Um, I I very rarely think a bomb going off at the end of a song or something adds very much. (laughs) Um, And there's Birdsong in between, I think I'm right in saying every single track on For Little Ones, as well as waves crashing against a shore and a baby crying. So those I think date it and probably I could live without. If I could get a version of it that didn't have those on, I'd be perfectly happy with it. Oh, that's funny. I like all that. I think it's I don't mind the I don't mind the the bird song. I think few things are gonna turn me off listening to a record than something that starts with a baby crying. I agree with that. I could do without horrible. that. Horrible. It's a stressful sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it gets off to an unpromising start for you then, Andrew, but um how do you get on with the rest of it? I I love it. Absolutely love it. And for exactly the reason that um I love HMS Donovan, that it's kind of, it's Donovan at his best when he's tapping into something otherworldly and ethereal. He, you sense that, you know, the veil is thin in those songs and he's kind of in touch with something very spectral. You know, it's obviously the reason why he likes Yeats, his version of the Song of the Wandering Angus. There's a sense that when you get that close to nature, you're communing with something mystical and, and they do have, they have a, a strange magic to them, those records. There's only a certain amount of Donovan records that do that. But when he he gets it right, they're brilliant. Yes, it's easy to overlook the the range and depth of his writing and, and innovations in those days. Absolutely. Fantastic record. Thank you for selecting it, uh, Richard. That's amazing. Let's go on to yours, Andrew. What what are you proffering? Uh, can I just say before you, you do, is it, both of you are, um, are used to very deep dives, but you've both picked records quite close to the surface. Do you feel your tastes have mellowed slightly as you've, you've got older? You're not so bothered by things being obscure or is this just coincidence in this case? 
And there may be a little bit of the contrarian in me of the, the record that I've chosen. Gone, I've gone for an area that I think is deeply unfashionable. You know, early 21st century, an album that came out on CD is very obviously digitally produced. In a way, I think I have gone against all those romantic ideas of what a classic record is. I think you're right. My scope is much more Catholic and less snobby than it used to be, yeah. and less male, small M, than it used to be. And I think it's also allowed itself to be more in tune with emotional aspects to a record, which my choice very much is. It's about kind of who I was then and who I am now. Yeah. Well, let's start by listening to uh, a bit of the album you've selected, which is Let Go by Narda Surf. Left some food wrapped up in a plastic bag on the kitchen table way too long sat down to eat next to the bag I was too tired to throw it out I saw a swarm of fruit flies I took the bag downstairs When I came back They were still there Flying jerky patterns like Snowflakes in the air I Sorry You got nowhere to go I'm sorry You got nowhere to go Fly from Let Go by Narda Surf, track three on this record. Tell us about it, Andrew. It's interesting that you chosen that one after listening to Donovan because that's a song where he places himself in the mind of a fruit fly. It's <laughs> yes. a very Donovan thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Narda Surf, the New York um, trio, occasionally quartet. And I mean, in America, I suppose, where they're probably best known, where they were defined as one-hit wonders. They had a hit called Popular that came out in 1996, which was, which was a massive MTV hit. And uh, they were signed to Elektra. And then Elektra said, do another Popular. And um, they didn't, so they got dropped. So they self-released their second album. And this is their third. Probably could easily be described as power pop for the you know early 21st century. The thing I really like about this record is two things, really. One, I picked an album that was incredibly important when I heard it. I would have been in my early 30s in 2002. It felt it was one of those records that kind of spoke to me because it's really good at capturing things like boredom, directionlessness, doubt, 
and also the idea that you don't know what to think. It's not very fixed in its ideas. It's constantly fluid. It always seems to be trying to capture a feeling that you can't explain. And the other thing that I love about it is it's very much an album of its age. So it talks about things that in the, in the space of these 20 years have really dated, like walking around listening to one record on your CD Walkman staring out of train windows or looking at parked cars because, you know, we don't experience that kind of boredom any, anymore. We don't, you know, we don't only have one record to walk around to. We don't find ourselves just staring out of train windows maybe in the same way. It was even pre-iPod, wasn't it? This Yeah. yeah. There's a, a an aspect of autobiography to this. When I did the strokes for Mojo, I went over to interview them. That would have been about 2001 maybe. And I met this I met this girl out in LA and we stayed in touch on social media on something called Friendster. <laughs> and then I was going out to review Sonic Youth. And I said, Oh, you know, and I got in touch with this guy. I said, I'm coming out, I'm coming out to her. And she said, Oh, brilliant, fantastic. And I'd mentioned this record to her. So I said, I'll bring that record and you can hear it. And I got there and I don't know what had happened, whether it is that thing where you kind of keep in touch with someone as an epistolatory romance and then you meet them face to face and the, the spark has gone. Yeah. But she kind of, you could tell I just met her and she just kind of was looking at me going, this isn't what I thought it was. You know, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Some other dude. Yeah. And she, she had a, a flat that belonged to her friend. And so she, and she basically sort of said, oh, you stay here. And then, and then effectively abandoned me. Oh, wow. So I was left with this record. The only record I had was this record. This record that is about not knowing what you're doing with your life, that's about <laughs> drinking too much, that's about not knowing what love is, you know, yeah. and, and as a kind of naive kind of existentialism in there. There's a lot of observing going on, isn't there, and, di and distance. Yeah. And so this record kind of assumed a huge emotional importance for me. And it was really interesting to go back to it because at the time I thought, you know, this guy has got it. He is spot on. He knows the human condition. And I listen to it now and I think he's fucked up. <laughs> so yeah. if you're allowed to swear on this podcast, Jim. Yeah, now himself. Fill your boots. He's a mess, you know, and it, so it was absolutely fascinating to go back to it and, and hear what I thought was this person who was, you know, insightful and, and, and observant of what was going on around him. And now I just zone in on all the songs are about drinking too much. All the songs are about, you know, sleeping with people you shouldn't. It was absolutely fine to sing about in rock and roll music, but I was amazed by how age has changed the record it's not made it worse it's just made it different as one of my friends um says about these things i've stayed exactly the same but somehow the record has changed <laughs> <laughs> and now i come back to it and i find it a much sadder record i found it a much more melancholy record than i did at the time i was struck by it particularly because i haven't listened to this kind of thing since i worked at mojo that I seem to identify the 90s with this sound. Fountains of Wayne and Lemonheads and Teenage Fan Club and the, the Jayhawks' Sound of Lies was a big record Very at, much so. at that period. And so I put this on with some sort of trepidation because I thought, I don't really do this kind of thing anymore. And I absolutely loved it. It completely gripped me straight away. And it, it feels like it's a sort of perfect example of its form, uh, that you could play this record to someone who wanted to know what power pop influenced by punk in the 90s sounded like you could give them this and it would explain everything do you feel that that's true 
I think there's something quite throwaway about it as well, which is another one of the reasons why I wanted to choose it. I don't feel like in 2000, because it's actually quite late for that kind of music. Because I was going to come on to that. Was it was it considered slightly old hat when it came out? I think I think it probably was. I mean, the, go and look at the Pitchfork review of it. It's literally something just going, ha, 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 not a surf, ha, ha, ha. You know, you had, you've all hit wonders, ha, ha, ha. I think they were very unfashionable. That kind of music was past its best. That kind of introspection, almost kind of maybe you could argue self-indulgence, poor me kind of quality to the lyrics was yeah. deeply unfashionable at the time. But it does it so well, maybe because it's a, yeah. a late version of it. It's the best I've heard it done in certain respects. It's not too self-pitying. Yeah. And the, the idea of, Comparing yourself to a fruit fly. <laughs> it's, it's just fantastic. I was trying to think of a visual metaphor for the for the way the record felt when I first heard it. And the only thing I could think of was it was like seeing a rainbow in an oily puddle. It's yeah. It's quite a basic record, isn't it? In, yes. in you know, it's a it's a power trio recording, really. But they managed to extract some beauty f- from the format, um, which is I thought was quite unexpected. And I like the fact that the the beauty is from prosaic surroundings, that it is just like, you know, being on a train, being on a bus, being in a corner store. And again, I think there's a parallel with the Donovan album. It's about that when boredom becomes almost psychedelic, you know, where you've stared so long at something that you have that kind of out-of-body experience. You enter the mind of a fruit fly. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, you kind of, you look at the train that's passing you and it looks like it's floating, you know, and kind of, there's a real beauty and melancholy to it, even though it's it's dressed up in this very, what you could say might be sort of very disposable, throwaway, already out-of-date pop format. Yeah, that's a great couplet, isn't it? On in um, paper boats, where as we pass by each other, our heads off, all full of bother. There's a some sort of rousing moment in the track there, and and the melody is really good. And it's yeah, it's such as you say, it's such a basic image, but it, it it's tremendously um, exciting in that moment in the song. Is it Happy Kid that has that line? No matter who I hang out with, I hear the clank clunk of the chains that pull the cars of the roller coaster. In it. Yeah, it's that's a fantastic image. Isn't yeah. It? constant state of of not being part of the scene yeah richard what do you do you make of it generally i I really like it but what i'm trying to do is put myself into the the state of mind i would have been in in 2002 and and understand why i didn't listen to it then and barely came across it i mean i've only ever heard of them as a band quite honestly i wouldn't have known the album title until exactly me too exactly the same yeah um and um, what well, I mean, I, I slightly balk at calling it power pop because that's such an awful catch-all phrase. But yeah. you know those those very catchy upfront pop songs, and then more reflective and maybe a little bit more introspective sound-wise, not necessarily lyrically songs. Maybe made it hard to listen to when, in my memory, two thousand and two was a pretty awful. I, I can only think of Chris Evans whenever I think about that era <laughs> in the history. It doesn't make me nostalgic. That's that's a re- but that's a really important point. And again, it was another one of the re- Marie, the reasons behind choosing it. It's not. It it seems to have been pulled from an era that we maybe don't associate, or we of our age don't associate with nostalgia, or don't look back on fondly. 
for that reason, it's kind of ripe for reassessment now, isn't it? Because it's out of context. You're not listening to it thinking, crikey, they're still making this noise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And do you not think, Richard, that a lot of records that people, a lot of records from the 70s that people have reassessed were dismissed at the time because people thought, crikey, they're still making this noise? Oh, definitely. And I think that, that now we're so lucky that the context doesn't matter. Yeah. It's just, it's much easier to be objective. Of course, we all bring our own prejudices to the party anyway, but we're not snobs about which clan the band belonged to back in the day. So you can listen much more open-mindedly and also you can enjoy a variety of music now so much more easily. I mean, it, it was impossible, literally impossible back then to listen to the volume of good music that was coming out. There was just too much of it. And I think um, it does take a lot of time for people to be able to assess things fairly and work out what is actually um, emotionally resonant. I think it's it's the ones that have got a bit of emotional heft to them, which ultimately people start identifying with in larger numbers and become part of the canon. And, and I think the Nada Surf might fall into that category in, in another 20 years time. Do you not think that though the people do associate that what you call emotional heft with the fact that these records were ignored at the time so it adds a kind of extra melancholy to it if big star were just singing light throwaway pop songs then the sense of it being you know kind of a lost record wouldn't have the same weight but the fact that these are such emotionally complex songs it gives it a kind of richer story you know these people were pouring their heart out emotionally and everyone ignored them it adds a certain weight doesn't it to the the value of the record funnily enough i had a rather heated debate the other day with a, a guy who told me he was a big fan of Big Star. Uh, it was a guy in his early 20s. And I had to sort of disabuse him of the notion that that's what the 70s actually sounded like, that they meant nothing at the time. And he was um, going on about how much he liked Alex Chilton's solo stuff. And I thought that was really odd because, you know, like flies on Sherbert, by that time, he'd, however good he'd been in the past, Alex Chilton is sounding mentally ill on those later records. Yeah. It's like Skip Spence's awe. I'm not sure we should be championing that stuff. But I do love the idea of, of a young person like that who has popped up in the field of music like a mole and just sort of said, oh, well, I'll have a bit of Big Star, I'll have a bit of Curtis Mayfield, I'll have a bit of, I don't know, Lee Found or whatever, and created their own music history. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, people don't often come out and say it, but there is a strong connection between these outsider artists that people venerate and mental illness and that slightly vicarious um, element of of looking on at Sid Barrett or the person that Sid Barrett once was and, and became by listening to these, mm. or, or, or Pink Moon by Nick Drake might might qualify or, yeah. or um, one of the others we could name and people don't come out and say it but the facts are that the mental illness aspect to it does make it compelling in a way that um, maybe we should feel a bit less comfortable about. The thing that had the most massive influence on me with Nick Drake was my brother bought the first Fruit Tree reissue. Mm. Those three drawings of Nick Drake inside, this kind of stormy, wind-tossed, clearly troubled individual on the front, and seeing that kind of change in those three drawings, that was what made me want to listen to Nick Drake. <laughs> and I have to confess that his was the only track on bumpers that I used to skip. 
But I think it's really good to say you don't like yeah. someone like Nick Drake. I mean, no, I do like Nick Drake, but at 10, I wasn't ready for him. But uh, it's easy to, to assume that everyone likes the same things. There was something about his poshness and his niceness and his feyness that didn't suit what I was attracted to at the age of 10 or whenever I was listening to bumpers. You know, I was much more into Thunderbuck Ram by Mott the Hoople or whatever on that, yeah, on that, yeah. on that record. Um, you know, clearly didn't connect with a lot of people because, you know... Yeah. Like, well, it's one of the things I'm trying to investigate in my research and, and um, interviewing at the moment is, is how he was received at the time and why those records didn't sell, because there isn't really a good reason why he, his records didn't sell better than they did. Yeah, one can reverse engineer some explanations. but um, I can tell you something about my adverse reaction to Fresh Maggots, which was around about the same time as Nick Drake was coming out, was yeah. it, uh, sort of um, 1971. And I can remember thinking when I first heard it, that it sounded exactly like the kind of people that would come on stage during assembly from the, you know, Bible studies classes or whatever and play Morning Has Broken and Streets of London and what I thought were sort of platitudinous songs um, and then occasionally someone would plug in and do a horrible electric guitar solo. And the Fresh Maggots album sounded exactly like that to me mm. uh, and that's what put me off. Um, and I wonder if there was something like that about Nick Drake that, in the time when, I don't know, people were listening to Pink Floyd and Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin, uh, he seemed a bit Hello Trees, Hello Sky by comparison. Um, and just, you know, surplus to requirements at that moment. And then, of course, in my case, later on, deeper into adolescence, he made a lot more, a lot more sense. Yes. And, and maybe that's what needed to happen. He needed to come out of context for a whole new generation who suddenly heard him as if he was fresh and, and, and new and didn't have any... Uh, hang-ups uh, about what was around at the time when he first appeared and and also without the cool west coast neil young type image of um topanga yeah. canyon and lots of beautiful ladies coming and going and that sort of thing which made american singer songwriters seem glamorous yeah yeah well let's turn now to the record that i've brought along which is uh from 1967 on the polydor label and it's by the london jazz four and it's called takes a new look at the beatles <laughs> That's uh, London Jazz 4 and their versions of Things We Said Today and Rain, taken from an album called Take a New Look at the Beatles. And the reason I chose this is that during lockdown, as you do, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole at one point. I had a lost afternoon to fill. I started just researching jazz versions of Beatles songs. 
I ended up writing a quite quite a long blog, I don't know, 20 or 30 different examples of this sort of strange hybrid. And I felt that this record, this album, which came out in 1967, is the best example I could find of someone doing a whole album of Beatles songs and just doing it with some some flair. It's entertaining, it's beautifully played by the alternative Fab Four, who are Mike, Ron, <laughs> Len and Brian. And, um, you know, it treats the source material with, with affection and wit and skill, I think. I mean, there's a novelty aspect to it. It's, um, you can tell by the cover art, silhouettes of the band with bowler hats and umbrellas looking at silhouettes of caricatures of the Beatles. So it's obviously been designed to sell to musical tourists of some kind. And it's soft, loungy, TV-themed jazz. It's not bitches brew or anything. But um, it makes you smile, it swings like mad, and it includes a few killers. I love that version of Rain. The vibraphone is by, uh, played by Ron Forge, and it's really good. And there's a super slow from me to you as well. But I think probably the best moment is that Things We Said Today, which is reimagined as a samba and taken a, quite a clip. I like Mike McNaught's piano playing. He sounds a bit sort of Dudley Moore-ish. Bassist Brian Moore and drummer Len Clark, the dishy one, according to the liner notes. <laughs> um, well, you know, they attack their parts like it's almost closing time. And I wondered why I was so struck by it. But when I first heard it, which would be about 20 years ago when it was reissued on, on CD, I thought, this is great. Now, why, do I, why am I so attracted to this? It's not just the Beatles aspect. And I realised that an album I grew up with that was in the house, a 50p album from Woolworths that my dad bought home from work, uh, one Friday evening was LJ4's Elizabethan songbook. The one they did afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't quite put two and two together at the, at the time. My dad would play that record whenever they were having people over. It was the sound of party time and guests coming around. The lights would be dimmed, the candles would be lit, and Elizabethan songbook would go on the stereo. And so it's an instant feeling of, oh, we're about to have a nice time. <laughs> and, and I get to lemonade with some wine in it or whatever, you know. With a slightly weird Tudor That's right. undertone. <laughs> yeah. Swan canapes came out. Yeah, you must try the swan. <laughs> Gavotte round the living room. It's funny, isn't it, how just sort of the texture of something like that can remind you of, of things. I suddenly went, oh, of course, that's why I was attracted to it, uh, because I, I recognised the sort of British jazz stylings. So I was listening to think this is the sound of sophistication in this <laughs> yeah. and I wonder whether there's that's part of the appeal that it kind of takes something that even then was considered as even though the you know the Beatles were the acceptable family face of rock and roll and basically says you know these tunes are quite sophisticated you know with if anybody you know usurped the jazz community it was the Beatles yeah John Cameron who we were talking about earlier he used to do summer seasons playing with a little piano led rhythm section uh, dance music, little sets uh, in the intervals of uh, big band gigs, um, you know, like the skiffle sessions would have been in the in the 50s. Yeah. And he said in 1962, we'd do foxtrots and jives. And in 1963, it was all Mersey beat. And within, yeah. within months, the whole uh, repertoire had changed. And the kids didn't want jazz anymore. It, it went <laughs> all of a sudden. There's something also sort of poignant about these are the these are the guys that suddenly think, well, how on earth do we do we get back in the game? Uh, we better do some Beatles tunes. I think there's an element of that, and 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 there had been jazz Beatles albums before this one, which are less good because they played it straight and they were obviously slightly slumming it, just playing the melodies in their sleep. Yeah, there's one by the Roger Webb trio called um, John Paul and all that jazz, which is actually on Parlophone, which is quite a boring record because it just sounds like you're in a hotel lobby. Yeah. 
The thing that's great for me about the London Jazz 4 record is that without stretching a point, I think if you played it someone, to someone cold, they wouldn't know that it was an album of Beatles covers. That Things We Said Today is quite recognisable because of the, the refrain at the beginning, yeah. but Rain, it, yeah. you wouldn't know. It's slowed down, it's played on glockenspiel, and it's got loads of improvisation in it. And so they take the songs, they take the melodies, and then they use it as a starting point for their own interplay and improvisation. So for me, it's a really successful record on that, on that front, rather than just being a cocktail record, which is a, a, a quirky little curio i think it stands up on its own as a really good record and i think it's again a tribute not that they need any to the beatles to john and paul that their melodies had the flexibility to be adapted in that way without sounding ridiculous i also noticed the recording engineer on this record is eddie kramer so he, yeah he probably went straight from this to um electric ladyland wow. and it's produced by tony reeves who um was in Coliseum and Greenslade, but also produced loads of great underground music. Oh, really? Oh, that's incredible. He's still going strong. He's an absolutely lovely guy. Tony played in the Mike Taylor Quartet at the same time, so they were, and in the Rendell Carr Quintet, so they were all part of the same little bubble of um, experimental musicians. British jazz, discuss, it's definitely had a revival. Why do you think that is? Why are people fascinated by it? Well, I would say personally, kind of, and it was, I'll put it all down to those impressed reissues that came out 20 years ago, because my knowledge of British jazz before then was, was next to nothing. I knew nothing about, you know, Nucleus or Mike Taylor or anything. And I was just blown away by the, the quality of these records, having grown up thinking that all British jazz was, was Stranger on the Shore. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, that's me being absolutely honest with you. And now just think it's it's a world of incredible music and I've grown up completely ignorant of it. One of the rare 50p purchases that I've hung on to from, from this period was um, Stan Tracy's Undermilk Wood, which is an incredible record. Oh, yeah. Let's see. I've got a copy of that now. <laughs> yeah. And um, that, I think, is an interesting example of people that, having been usurped by pop, had to kind of double down on just going off in their own direction, didn't they? And yeah. Going a bit more avant-garde. And people like him and Rendell started to make these, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary records. Funnily enough, listening to the Don Rendell stuff, I think Don Rendell's the least interesting person on those records. <laughs> oh, I just, I just do not agree with that, Jim. That really? I, I love Michael Garrick. I think he's incredible. Oh, Michael Garrick. I think Don Rendell's soprano sax playing is absolutely wonderful and it's so tasteful and sensitive and um, all over those Randall Carr Quintet records. Yeah. It, I, I, I love it, yeah. It hasn't hit me yet. I've, I've, I, found, <laughs> I found that, that Garrick and Carr were the things that I was listening to more or responding to yeah. more. British jazz in that period was um, suffered very strongly by comparison with American jazz, not on qualitative terms, but there was just a snobbery that British jazz players weren't anything to compare to the American ones. And young kids with duffel coats who were the classic young jazz fans wanted the American jazz. They didn't want the British stuff. Uh, and that was partially because I think the trad boom had tarnished uh, British jazz players as being slightly novelty-ish, but also because it just wasn't supported in the same way. So when you look through now old copies of Jazz Journal or Jazz Monthly or Crescendo or even Melody Maker, the amount of attention given to the British players at the experimental end of the spectrum is very small compared to the Americans. There was real excitement when, let's say, John Coltrane came to London. But the average amazing Stan Tracy type 
person, of whom there were quite a few in the UK, got a very limited attention. And that, I think, was largely due to snobbery. Mm. And the other thing I'd say about British jazz in that period is in, 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 in um, the 60s is that it was really only recorded by Dennis Preston at Lansdowne. And he just really should have a statue up to him in Holland Park because he single-handedly underwrote all of this music because he loved it and he recognised that it had validity mm. and would be of use to people in posterity and would give pleasure. And without him, you know, Joe Harriet, the Randall Carr Quintet, Stan Tracy, on and on the list goes, who he recorded and then had a licensing deal with Columbia, with EMI. And the reason he had that deal was because he was also supplying them with Rolf Harrison, Boot Steamhouse and um, Roger Whittaker, mm. who were selling millions for them all over the world. So they let him do this and he did it. And, and he, without him, we simply wouldn't have this jazz apart from a few BBC live recordings. And it's really incredible the amount of stuff that Dennis Preston single-handedly preserved for us all. The um, Tubby Hayes box was pretty good that um, Universal did last year. And I th was interesting yeah. reading the sleeve notes on that. And he complained bitterly about the fact that the interest was solely in American jazz right at that point. He couldn't even get a gig at Ronnie Scott's in the uh, in the yeah. in the mid sixties because you know <laughs> Ronnie wouldn't employ his own compatriots at the at the club. Incredible. And he he ended up playing at the um, the the Bull in Barnes and uh, the Half Moon in mm. Putney and that kind of thing. That's where sort of jazz was sort of exiled to. And Ronnie Scott's obviously had to have a business head to some extent and the punters wouldn't come and buy drinks and dinner to watch a British guy. Yeah. It's very strange, isn't it, that we're all so enthusiastic about it and talking about these people with genuine appreciation for what they do and that that didn't happen contemporaneously. Well, I think in a way that's kind of been the theme of today, though, hasn't it? Yeah. You, know, you know, the idea that the reasons why we go back and rediscover this stuff are very different from the reasons why we why people listen to that music at the time and they're so dictated by what's hip and cool and taste and how you choose to identify yourself whether it's somebody like ronnie scott or whether it's just a punter what it means to say i'm into american jazz in 1967 and what it means to say i'm into british jazz you know well, I notice that the clock is coughing and looking at its watch, so um, it's time to draw this conversation to a close. Uh, gentlemen, uh, Andrew Mayle, Richard Morton-Jack, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank, thank you, you, Jim. It's been uh, terrific. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, and likewise me. Thanks, Jim. And just a reminder that the records we've been listening to today are Let Go by Nada Surf, Andrew Selection, and Richard brought in Four Little Ones, Gift from a Flower to a Garden by Donovan. And my album was Takes a New Look at the Beatles by the London Jazz Four. And if you pop along to jimirvin.com, you'll find my blog about the Beatles versus jazz there. And also here's one I made earlier, which is the podcast series that I made earlier. And that includes uh, the conversation with John Cameron that I've mentioned a couple of times in this episode. Oh, and also on Spotify, there will be a playlist that includes all three albums and some of the music we've been talking about today. So please go and look for that. And wherever you get your podcasts, like or subscribe or comment on us, because that helps attract new listeners and we much appreciate it. And I hope you can join us again next time when we'll be talking to some more guests about the forgotten albums that they love in You're Not On The List. Bye-bye.